This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. This seems to be the linchpin of good programs is when you have leadership that says not only do we support you, go ahead, Mary Ellen, this sounds great, but also putting resources and effort and making sure that the departments understand that this is something that we're all in. That's that's just, that's critical to have that kind of endorsement. Well, thank you for saying that because I think you've summarized it beautifully and that is that the leadership support of this has been not only, as you mentioned, good idea type of support, but really what are the infrastructure needs? How do we, in an ongoing way, make this just part of the culture of right. how we do things, mm-hmm. uh, which again speaks to the success, hopefully, of the sustainability of this. And um, what we're really hoping is that this also it, it helps us to advance and refine the other programs that feedback on clerkships evaluations will change, that, you know, all the sorts of things that are important in all aspects of the curriculum will actually even get better than they currently are because of this attention and effort. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Mary Ellen Gussick, the Senior Advisor for Educational Affairs and Professor of Medical Education in Pediatrics at UVA. Hi, Mary Ellen. Welcome to the Faculty Factory Podcast. Hi. How are you? Oh, we're good. Well, you know, we uh, have talked with Sue Pollard, your Senior Associate Dean, and Troy Buer. And we've had a lot of great conversations about things going on down there at UVA. You're definitely highlighted as someone we needed to talk to. And I know you have a lot of interesting (laughs) things to share about uh, what you're doing in education, especially for clinicians. So why don't you start by telling us how um, you wound up from education and pediatrics to educational affairs and faculty development work? Oh, thanks for that question. Um, Actually, really starting early in my career, one of the ways that I was um, interested in thinking about education, was thinking about what I personally needed to do to um, enhance my skills as an educator. And then from that, thought about, well, how can I also work with my colleagues and help us collectively um, increase our skills? And really then moving towards focusing our career in education, develop our academic niches as educators. And so really from starting back early in my career at Penn State, I had a great opportunity first in the pediatrics department to start to think about faculty development, but then at an institutional level to get involved in faculty development. And so most of my scholarship actually is in that realm of thinking about how best to prepare educators, document what educators do, and then value that in promotion processes. A lot of then, again, my work in faculty development um, provided me the opportunity to start thinking about How do we actually study and think about what the impact of faculty development is? And so um, working early in my career at Penn State as a co-director of the junior faculty development program, um, we were really able to think about, again, how are we measuring the impact of the program on the faculty and the institution? And so what shaped some of my work is actually being um, boots on the ground in faculty development and then stepping back and thinking about how do we actually explore this in a way, in a scholarly way, that will help others learn as we're learning? I think one of the most influential parts of that was thinking about um, the importance of projects uh, in faculty development, again, as a tangible, not only uh, aspect of experiential learning in faculty development, 
but also as something tangible that comes out um, as a benefit for the individuals being involved and the institutions that are supporting faculty through faculty development. So now, really you, from a very, oh, sorry. Oh, so I'm sorry. just so curious how um, this position evolved. So your expertise mm-hmm. at Penn State uh, was what drew you to UVA or they recruited you for this brand new position of senior advisor yeah. for educational affairs or did you fill um, a, a gap where someone had left? I'm, I'm curious how you yeah. took that expertise to UVA. Yeah, so... Um, Actually, it was a, a pathway that started because I started to work with colleagues at UVA uh, as a consultant, actually, in thinking about how to implement a new program for clinical assessment. Um, and so from that work, um, joined uh, the faculty and joined the Office of Educational Affairs and uh, actually am now responsible for the oversight of that program, and I can tell you a little bit more about that program. But then since my time being there, have taken on um, additional roles and responsibilities that now include faculty development for educators. Right. You know, I have the great, you mentioned Sue Pollard, I have the great privilege of working with Sue, and uh, Sue and Troy have implemented a junior faculty development program, which um, honestly, was starting right as I joined the faculty at UVA, and they honor me tremendously by asking me to be the keynote speaker for that inaugural year. Um, and I've been able to, again, I think, uh, learn with them and bring my experience from previously doing that at another, another institution to think about the junior faculty development program at UVA. So that, I think, underlies what's very exciting about my position. Again, I'm overseeing a, a new program of clinical assessment. I can talk about the faculty development that's a part of that. I've now taken on the other faculty development that is uh, designed to help, again, educators develop their skills and advance their career. Um, But because, uh, again, UVA is a place where Sue and Troy are so collaborative and the Senior Associate Dean for Education and the Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs and Faculty Development, Sue Pollard and Randy Canterbury, work so closely together and so collaboratively that um, they are now actually charging a, a new leader for our academy as well to redesign our academy for educators. Okay. And so it's really opened the door to think across everything we're doing in faculty development about how we create a, a broad and expansive portfolio but also integrate our efforts primarily for the purposes of ensuring that we're meeting the needs of all types of faculty, but also thinking about how faculty would know for this purpose or for my own personal professional goal, this is the right venue or event or activity or program to engage in. So right now, in fact, next week, I'm meeting with a new leader for the uh, academy and thinking of collectively about what the academy will do as it moves to its new future, what the Office of Medical Education will do, and again, how that integrates overall with uh, the efforts of Sue's office. Wow. Wow, that's a a huge investment um, at UVA in education and working with our faculty for their education in the in the classroom, on on the floor, in the hospital, in the rounds with trainees and uh, for their own educational scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why don't you and, te- go ahead? Can I just I just want to also share I think something that's unique and again um, that I'm so thankful for at UVA is that part of my job description is actually an expectation and again honestly this is my joy to mentor uh, others in their development as educators 
and in their development of educational scholarship. So again, that's actually written into my job description, which again, I think highlights, as you said, um, the importance of that focus for UVA. That's right. So, so why don't you get into a little bit of the nitty gritty about some of these really uh, great programs and all the work you've done there? Sure. So I mentioned that one of the things uh, that I've been working and focusing a lot of time on is working with a group of uh, leaders who have implemented a new program for clinical assessment using entrustable professional activity. So many medical schools are developing uh, ways in which the EPA, the core EPH for entering residency, can become a part of their curriculum and their assessment uh, strategy for looking at medical student performance. One of the things we've focused a lot at UVA um, is on the faculty development that, and I use the word faculty, but I would say professional development that will allow both residents and faculty to be prepared to use a new system of assessment and to integrate those efforts in using a new system with the more traditional system of assessment for medical student performance that all medical schools use, meaning in their clinical rotations, evaluating the medical students Um, completing their evaluations that become eventually part of their portfolio for their MSPE. So we've created this new program of assessment. We've worked with each department to uh, uh, think about how best to implement it. But a key and fundamental principle has been working with the department to identify how can we best uh, work with your faculty and residents in order to prepare them to learn about direct observation. Um, to make direct observation part of their daily work with learners, Mm. Uh, to use data from observation, uh, to think about uh, the student's performance relative to standards that are not discipline-based or rotation-based, but rather um, uh, based on an expectation for performance by the end of medical school. So sort of using criterion-based assessment that is not, um, again, specific to what pediatrics might do or what surgery may do or what internal medicine may do. Um, And then to turn those expectations for performance into a decision or a recommendation about the level of supervision that a, a student needs at this point in their career with the ultimate goal of having them at a level of supervision need that is expected at the time you start residency. So it's really been a mind shift in how we even think about uh, when we see a student perform a task, how do we translate that into relative to this standard of expectations? And then add on top of that, so what does that mean about the supervision they need? So with the direct observation then, when the students are observing these uh, developmental histories that um, Mm -hmm. you've kind of run across and made them generics that are not necessarily specific to pediatrics. Can you tell us a little bit more again about that? Yeah. So again, we do this in a very interactive way in that before we even show these recordings, we get the really expertise in the room and talk about how one shifts from the side to side bedside teaching where we might interject and give feedback throughout the process of working with a student to really being an observer to allow the student to perform the task. So we first start with strategies and then again support that by what the literature says um, are good strategies to use for direct observation. And that um, again is a place for people to sit back and say, although I work with students so closely, I haven't sort of put on my assessor hat and stepped back in the way that we're talking about to allow the student to do the task 
before I give any feedback. Um, we then all watch the uh, recording together, uh, practicing these direct observation skills, and then talk about the performance expectations. Um, and again, part of the richness of that conversation is that residents feel comfortable expressing their feelings, even with very senior faculty in the room. And we come to, again, a shared understanding of these are the expectations. How do we take off our, well, I've been working with medical students for 25 years, and this is what I've always expected to say, no, these are the expectations, and what did I just see? How do I then apply these criteria? Right. That, that must have taken quite a bit of time to go to every department and come up with these um, criteria that were specific to the departments, but then broad enough or the general, that you could generalize across the board. How much time did you spend preparing this new, um, this new tool, this new way of um, observation? Yeah, so um, just to be clear, the criteria actually apply across departments, and we ask the faculty to think about how they then would be um, applicable to their setting. So again, as I mentioned in pediatrics, um, a developmental history is part of a comprehensive history, but the uh, component of that um, on our expectation grid would be more about, again, incorporating all the uh, critical components of the history, a developmental history is a critical component in, in my specialty for a comprehensive history, but not necessarily for another specialty. And so in these uh, departmental sessions, they actually use the standard set of criteria and as a group talk about, well, what does that actually mean in our specialty? So again, to ensure some uniformity. What we're trying to do is help, um, uh, again, set up a system in which students can be assessed across different disciplines. Um, and not feel like it's Groundhog Day, meaning that um, I, I worked with this attending yesterday, or I worked with this attending last week, or I was on that rotation before, and it's a whole different ball game. The rules are all different for this rotation. Right. Um, so, yeah, so that's a, a, a really uh, comes out, uh, I think, in some of the conversation that happens about how we go from what may seem idiosyncratic to really helping students know that these are uh, data points about their continued development, and they do continue to develop as they go across the different disciplines. Wow. Now, how does, how does this translate into faculty development? You mentioned that earlier. Would lo- I'd love to yeah. hear more about that. Yeah. So, you know, again, using a new system of assessment means that faculty have to feel comfortable and confident and believe that that new system is credible, honestly. So part of the goal of faculty development is, um, for, for this particular program, is the aha moments that happen mm. when people start to talk about um, how they um, will assess students in this new program how they will make this more of an objective um, determination. And then, um, again, what we think has been very freeing is when we start to talk about then how do you translate this into a supervision decision, that it's about this one piece of data, and this is not, um, which many faculty are concerned about, they're not hurting or helping. What they're doing is just providing information. So the other component of this that we've focused a lot on is how uh, to provide feedback in this new system that may be different than the way people have provided feedback um, in other situations. Mm. And what, and again, what we're seeing is that um, the narrative comments and what the students tell us about the feedback they are receiving is quite different um, because the person was in the room mm-hmm. um, 
they have linked their feedback to something specific that happened in the room, which both the learner and the teacher experienced. Um, so it's not global. It's not um, something that's an aggregate of multiple experiences, but really based on this one experience, which helps the students um, actually, I think, um, use that information because, again, there's credibility to it. They saw the faculty member give and the resident give them um, that time um, um, and, to, and that they were in the room with them watching. And so there's a lot of elements of that aspect of this new program and, again, helping people think about how this just becomes the way we work with medical students that has been quite a strong positive for the program wow. and for the institution. Yeah. Now, now, what kind of um, metrics have you set up to be able to judge or implement, I mean, um, effectiveness mm-hmm. or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the outcomes of this new system that you put in place compared to the other one? Are you um, being held to, are your feet being held to the fire by any of your leaders to to document evidence of return on investment for this new venture? Um, are there mm-hmm. any, you know, outcomes that you're hoping to produce some scholarship around this, um, yeah. any change in like time or morale mm-hmm. or retention or faculty satisfaction or trainee satisfaction. Can you talk a little bit about how you're going to assess yeah. the effectiveness of this? Yeah. So uh, what a great question. So, um, I ha- will have to say that the other thing that's been very, um, positive is, uh, for the program. And I think for implementing uh, a new, um, system of assessment, um, and engaging uh, the community in this new system is that our dean, um, David Wilkes, is incredibly supportive. Um, and uh, again, when you think about we want to create a program where students are directly observed, where they get immediate feedback about their performance, and that overall they will um, get feedback and have a faculty coach, which I can talk about, who helps them look at this information from the feedback or data from assessment as a tool for their own learning. Uh, he he was all in, which was fantastic. Um, but he has also implemented with the Senior Associate Dean for Education um, systems that uh, allow people to understand the effectiveness of the program. So that part of the dashboard that our chairs are able to see continuously is about the number of assessments being done. Um, they can drill down and see the faculty who are engaging, the residents who are engaging, what sort of the... Um, supervision scales are um, and how they relate, uh, again, to the means and the department. So, again, that in itself is a tool potentially for faculty development to help people see how they're doing. So we've created uh, the tool to actually allow uh, just-in-time assessment to happen, but also data visualizations that help people, um, especially the students have a visualization immediately of this information. They have a faculty coach, which is a brand new role that was created to support the program, who helps them integrate this information and create learning plans uh, to continue their skill development. Um, We have another new role that was created, a a role called uh, Master Assessor, and this is a group of selected faculty who actually engage in monthly uh, faculty development to really uh, become uh, experts in assessment. Um, and they are doing these assessments across disciplines, outside their clinical discipline, and in, in fact making up our entrustment committee who looks at this data in aggregate to look at students' progression um, to be ready for day one of residency. There's been a lot of other systems set up, and again, um, it's because the dean and the senior associate dean have been so supportive of the program 
but each of those systems, we're actually um, looking at uh, both the effectiveness of them. So right now we have a paper about to submit looking at really the effectiveness of the faculty development as evidenced by consistency and application of these standards that I've been talking about. Wow. Um, We've also just submitted another paper, actually, that was very exciting to do because the first author is a medical student who was part of the pilot part of this program, uh, looking at student experience um, and how they're experiencing these new types of uh, ratings, meaning supervision ratings, and how they're experiencing the immediate feedback that's coming from these observations. And then we just had a a paper published in um, academic medicine that actually looks at how this has influenced our thoughts about thinking about the use of data related to competency and the fourth year of our medical students' experience. Wow, Mary Ellen. (laughs) That's a lot. I mean, was this this dashboard concept, now my expertise is not in education and and I have nothing Mm -hmm. to do with uh, medical training, so this this. Maybe a stupid question, but this dashboard that you described, this just-in-time concept, is this a new piece to to your new um, program of, of assessment, or did you have a dashboard before? This, because this sounds new to me. I, I love data, yeah. and I love accessibility of data. So when you're <laughs> describing this, I'm thinking, you know, hot dog, that's that's what we need. It's, I love that being able to look at data from both um I'm thinking, well, you're talking about like the trainee, the students and the and the mm-hmm. faculty. And I also think from like deans and faculty, mm-hmm. I love to be able to see data of who's doing what and what are their experiences in it and then what outcomes or how, what is the impact of that. So was this dashboard concept around before and you just kind of tweaked it or did you build a whole new dashboard? So, um, another great question. So we created um, a web-based um, tool for these assessments, and part of the development process was actually incorporating the plan for data visualization, and each data visualization has a slightly different um, look in that uh, we very uh, much specialize the visualization, and we continue to enhance these, to be frank, as we're using them and, and learning from people's experience in using them. So we have data visualizations based on the stakeholders. Um, needs, right? So students and their coaches have a view of the data all the time. Every assessment that goes in, they can see it right away. They can see the progress that the students are making. Um, the the students' um, college deans, who are our uh, student affairs deans, also have access to that information. Um, the, then the uh, chairs have a different visualization, again, based on what they would like to know as far as how their faculty and, and residents are engaging, how many assessments are being completed. We're working on views right now for individual faculty so that they can also have, um, again, information that they can use for their academic advancement, meaning that they can go in and see, I did this number of assessments. Right. Um, this is the mean for my department. So each visualization that's being has been or is being created is based on a specific need. The underlying premise, though, is that the data, uh, the ratings, the narratives are the students' information for their development. So some of these other visualizations don't um, link to individual students' data, but rather, as I mentioned in the departmental, they do see what their mean ratings are because, again, we're trying to help people see how consistent they're applying these standards. So that gives them a benchmark, so to speak. Are we sort of um, like our peers um, mm-hmm. and individual faculty, am I sort of like my peers or am I? And so we've also created other sort of faculty development 
um, online that will allow people to refresh if they want to refresh when they get some of this information. But each of the visualizations is different based on the stakeholder who will use it. That's amazing. Now, I'm curious about your master assessor training. Yeah. Could you tell yeah. um, tell us about that and that the coaching element? I think that's also pretty cool. Yeah. So uh, two really new roles that were created to support the program, and each of them has faculty development as a part of it, which, again, is, um, as I mentioned very early on, um, always has been something that I've been excited by, new educational programs, and then thinking about, well, what are the faculty development aspects? How do we get everybody, um, again, not only excited about, but feeling ready to right. uh, participate in this new uh, innovative program? So the faculty coaches also were a select group of faculty, and the coaches work with students over four years, um, the same student over four years, and they have um, a couple different roles, but their roles related to this particular program are to meet with students at a really um, very regular um, uh, interval to use data from this assessment program in addition to other data that the students get from their other forms of assessment to really analyze it in a way to say, what are your strengths? Where are your areas for development? And how do I empower you to work with your next set of teachers to help meet those areas of development? So it's really a professional development for the students. Um, The students co-create with their um, coaches a learning plan. So even the process of learning how to write learning goals to how to come up with actions that will actually address those learning goals is all intended to be professional development for the students that will help them, you know, as lifelong learners, that's what we all hopefully approach our work with that mindset. Um, the master assessors well, are... Can, can I interrupt uh, you, Mary? Oh, just yeah, one, please. One second. The, the coach, you said they meet with them for four years. With what regularity? Because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's quite a commitment. And then yeah. if you could also address, does this help a faculty member get promoted? Is this like a criterion that they can put on their CV mm-hmm. for an educator and be promoted? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so great question. So in the first, um, the pre-clerkship phase of the curriculum, they meet quarterly. In the clerkship phase, um, they also meet quarterly. In the post-clerkship phase, they meet uh, twice a year. Okay. Um, so, so this role, though, part of the intention was to identify people who were interested in a career in education. This role is supported with FTE, which, again, speaks to the leadership of the institution's support of not only education right. but of this new program. And I, I'm not making this up. This afternoon, we have a call um, to think about scholarship related to the particular aspects of um, this coaching program and within the other roles that the coaches are doing. Mm-hmm. So honest to goodness, because part of our, our hope and our plan is that uh, this it will become a venue through which uh, the participants not only will uh, do this important work, but have the opportunity to advance their careers. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Now the master assessors yeah. are a different group, and um, their faculty development um, has been uh, from the very beginning of the program. Uh, initially, a lot of the faculty development these are more seasoned clinician educators um, at the associate or full professor um, uh, level, um, academic level, and they uh, came together initially. And our initial faculty development was about learning the sort of principles that underlie competency-based assessment, um, to learn more about the educational theory behind entrustable professional activities. Um, but then we moved to some uh, actual very experiential 
um, uh, professional development activities, meaning that we would go collectively and observe students and then talk about, again, what did we observe? You know, students actually doing these tasks in real time. What did we observe? What would you say to the student? How would you apply the standard? Again, not looking at my discipline, my discipline lens. I'm a pediatrician. I would only go to pediatrics. I'm up on internal medicine with these colleagues, and we're watching rounds, and we're listening to students present, and then we're talking collectively. So part of that process was, again, helping us to reinforce what the standards are and how we will apply those standards, because this group, um, again, is looking at students over time uh, in multiple settings. Mm. Uh, This group also makes up um, our entrustment committee, so we've also done a whole bunch of professional development around group decision-making, learning from the residency program level, how clinical competency committees work, what principles can we use from that experience and from what people have published related to that to actually apply to our entrustment committee's decision-making. Really, I would say even our entrustment committee meetings are professional development activities where we talk about the things we need to talk about, but then continue to think about what does this tell us? And uh, we just came out of our last one last this week, earlier in the week, and talked about, you know, what additional type of, um, again, norming activities do we need to use? How will we do additional things to ensure inner rate of reliability? So, again, all the standards for assessment. Yeah. This yeah. group is, uh, really identifies what they need, and we try to meet those needs. So is this a, um, the master assessor, is it a training or a curriculum that one be, takes a, a course or starts at month one and then month six, they've completed a number of observations and meetings and then they are granted a, a status of a graduate of the master assessor program or is this kind of an ongoing um, group membership and like affinity group? Yeah, so it's an ongoing group membership. So again, they were selected to participate we meet every month. Um, we, we drive the agenda for the meeting um, uh, by not only what we need to discuss um, uh, for implementation, but most of the meeting is spent on professional development. Wow. So uh, early on, um, again, uh, working with one of my colleagues, we thought about what some of the fundamental professional development needs may be. But then really this group, and again, they're seasoned faculty, clinician mm-hmm. educators have said, you know, what, what do you need? And right. so we've used that to sort of drive the professional development activities. And, and we're also, I had a meeting this week with, to think about the scholarship that this group um, will do uh, based on, again, their experience of working in this way with each, with each other. Now, now, here's a really naive question, but I can't get it out of my head ah. as, as you've been talking. How, yeah. do, how do you or how have you thought about um, unconscious biases mm-hmm. in this area. So um, mm-hmm. from faculty observers mm-hmm. to educator, to, to the trainees, and then vice versa, the students um, mm-hmm. being assessed or observed by faculty. Um, do, do you discuss or talk about, has this kind of risen to, to um, the top of any, mm-hmm. of any discussions around gender, sex, race, ethnicity, mm-hmm. religion, um, politics, I'm just, age, you know, all these different, mm-hmm. you know, areas where we mm-hmm. are so diverse. And, and I wonder about um, this, any of the unconscious bias training or awareness mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Um, microaggressions and things like that. And how have mm-hmm. you been able to carve that mm-hmm. out or call it out or at least 
talk about it and then mm-hmm. distinguish it from direct observable criteria mm-hmm. that are either yes or no versus up to subjective interpretation. I don't know if you get what you get what I mean. Yeah, I, no. can't, I don't know yeah, how to say no. it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. You said it perfectly. And I think um, it's a, it's a fantastic uh, question. And part of this goal of hoping to move from what may feel very subjective in clinical assessment to more of an objective was in order to think about that. Right. Um, and I think that as you have referenced this literature, um, in uh, more, I think, that I'm aware of in, in GME, but I think there's also um, uh, certain things that have been written about this, about how people do have biases in their evaluation of uh, learners. So it's a really important topic. So one of the things I think is fundamental to helping people um, think about the, um, from a student perspective, help the students see how this is, designed for you, like this is, is that this is completely separate from their grades, mm. completely separate. Mm-hmm. So um, that, again, allows somebody to say, I watched you do this. And, and in our uh, training uh, related to the feedback, we have helped people with the words based on my observation today or based on to allow the faculty or the resident also to say, this is not my impression of the student. Let me use data from the observation has allowed people, and we practice the whole idea of giving specific and measurable feedback. We practice the words. We practice writing in the tool, and we have people talk about it. But I think the critical aspect of thinking about direct observation and how we talk about direct observation, we do expressly call out how impression bias or -hmm. other biases may influence and how making that conscious before you go into a room to observe a student is a critical aspect of making this an objective assessment. So we actually do talk about that very specifically in the training. And again, whether it be unconscious bias around the things that you just mentioned or the fact that you worked with the student in another way in another rotation Mm -hmm. or worked with students that you would say, again, I've worked with third year students for a very long time. And so that brings some bias. So we are very um, explicit about talking about how biases can influence our assessment of students and that this, the goal of this program in being objective is that we have to bring those biases to our minds and consciousness um, in order to avoid having them influence not only what we write at the end, but our observation in real time. So we, we bring it up there and talk about it and then come back to it at the end when people are practicing, here's what I would write, and help give some of the language that helps link it to some specific thing that was um, observed during the encounter rather than, again, to some impression or inference somebody's drawing from that observation. Well, Mariella, that is wonderful. And I can't, I can't even um, imagine how much the students are learning about biases, then when that's brought to the forefront and just put out there and dealt with purposely and purposively, how they can then take that new skill into the examination rooms with their families and employing Mm -hmm. that same sense of awareness with observing patients and looking for trends and patterns Mm. when they do their histories and and when they actually, when they build relationships with families, I'm sure that they're going to be taking that same experience and that same sense of 
heightened awareness of where uh, we go instinctively making judgments. So I think you, you're that's a wonderful um, technique and skill that you're building that's going to take them beyond into being excellent practitioners. And then the, even the faculty, uh, you're teaching them that's all about communication because then mm-hmm. when you set up, you, you say you have a deliberate way of saying based on my observation today, that's also, I love that faculty development component. You're teaching leaders, people how to be leaders and use language that is more empowering and not um, setting someone up to be defensive. So all those, you've, you've incorporated so many elements about good leadership that I think works mm-hmm. in all ways, um, from yeah. faculty to trainee and going into the families and the community. So I think that's just fantastic, Mary Ellen. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I, I have to once again say that this has been a team effort uh, in that, uh, number one, all the colleagues and all the departments who have um, uh, helped us think about how to make this program possible. Um, each of the trainings where faculty and residents who are engaging in the conversation bring really tremendous expertise and great ideas um, and, and, and peer teaching in the room. And then the, the leadership team uh, responsible for this program um, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Bradley, uh, a PhD in our Office of Medical Education, and I do the majority of these trainings together. Uh, Dr. Megan Bray, who's our Associate Dean for Curriculum. Dr. Meg Keeley, who's one of our Student Affairs Deans. Dr. Linda Wagner-Fountain, who's one of our Master Assessors. Dr. Chris Peterson, who's another Student Affairs Dean. This group of colleagues who we meet actually um, very regularly as a leadership team have really helped think about what are the important things to do how do we, as we're hearing from people participating in the program, especially at the beginning, we did a pilot of all this. What are we hearing and how do we address that and how do we make this work for everybody? Uh, it really has uh, been a village and it's been a great village to be a part of, to be honest. <laughs> well, your, your student graduation uh, surveys feedback must be off the chart excellent because you've clearly <laughs> invested so much and It's just another example of when you have, you said your dean, David Wilkes, is behind you. This is, this seems to be the, the, um, the linchpin of good programs is when you have leadership that says, not only do we Mm -hmm. support you, uh, go ahead, Mary Ellen, this sounds great, but also putting resources and effort and making sure that the departments understand that this is um, something that we're all in. That's, that's just you, that's critical to have that kind of endorsement. And um, you obviously build a lot of good relations there to make this happen. And, and again, I'm sure it's going to be reflected in those, those student evaluations. <laughs> well, thank you for saying that because I think you've summarized it beautifully. And that is that the leadership support of this um, has been um, not only, as you mentioned, good idea type of support, but really what are the infrastructure needs? How do we, in an ongoing way, make this just part of the culture of right. how we do things? Mm-hmm. Uh, which, again, speaks to the success, hopefully, of the sustainability of this. And um, what we're really hoping is that this also um, uh, it, it helps us to advance and refine the other uh, programs, that feedback on clerkship evaluations will change, that, you know, all the sorts of things that are important in all aspects of the curriculum will actually uh, even get better than they currently are because of this uh, attention and effort. In, That's right. for this particular I mean, aspect. Yeah. We see this all the time when someone develops a good model or a tool and somebody else just has a moment to reflect and think about that and then all of a sudden 
the light bulbs start firing saying, wait a minute, we can take this dashboard and put that there. We can take this direct mm-hmm. observation component and put it here. We can use this master assessor concept and put it into a peer peer mentoring yeah. program. I mean, there's so many ways that when you come up with a good idea and you see it work, and that to me is always the big the key is we all have good ideas. We're all in academic medicine because we're curious and we and we can generate ideas pretty quickly. But the implementation is where a lot of us, you know, sometimes fall down because to make it happen is where the meat is. And you've obviously mm-hmm. done it. And then I think once people see that aha, uh-huh, good idea, and hmm, it's actionable, and it seems to be working. And oh boy, look at you, Mary Ellen, you know, banging out papers left and right. So there's scholarship <laughs> around it. So that's when I think that's the real contribution. That's how we advance. Because like you said, it's it's duplicated, it's replicated, it's modified, it's, it's modeled in other in other venues and places. So Mm-hmm. I love this kind of stuff. And I and I know nothing about education, so I've learned so much. <laughs> Did you want to share anything else with us um, today, Mary Ellen? Uh, so I, I guess the only other thing I'd share is that um, many times um, uh, the faculty development for educators may be done within an office of medical education. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a whole parallel uh, sort of universe of what the Office of Faculty Affairs and Faculty Development is doing. I think the other sort of fundamental thing that um, I've not only enjoyed but has allowed us to think about faculty development um, and how to make it most successful is that there is this collaborative spirit. There is this intention about uh, tell me more about what you are doing or want to do. How do we integrate this with what's happening over here? And how do we really create, again, an environment in which faculty feel not only that they're supported, but they have opportunities and they know which opportunities will best meet their needs at this stage in their career. So that's, that's largely, if not all, due to the fact that, of the people involved. And that is that I, I get the opportunity to work with such a great group of people who are, are, are collaborative at their hearts mm-hmm. um, and not interested in um, sort of what are, you know, you do you and I'll do me kind of right. <laughs> approach to thinking about right. it. So. Well, it, it makes me think, too, about when we, when we think about leadership and we talk about the macro level if, if, in the country, in the world, and what's happening in our politics these days, and, and mm-hmm. when we don't have a lot of, um, for example, in women in leadership and academic medicine, mm-hmm. we talk about that a lot. Well, it's sometimes hard to envision or have young people envision doing a thing, being a scientist, if you come from a community mm-hmm. where no one is a scientist, or being a leader if you don't see any women leaders, or being an educator in academic medicine if you don't see it happening. And right. to me, at UVA, it's happening everywhere. And as you, it's embedded in the culture, and it's so rampant, like these vines are everywhere, <laughs> that you're building and you have built a culture where people see it, they know what it looks like, they see the impact on the learners and the teachers. They see the impact to the field. And then it becomes real for them. Oh, that's something mm-hmm. I can do versus mm-hmm. having it, being an educator, listed in some kind of document of one can be promoted along this line and that not right. having anything that shows you what that means. And so right. you, you've built this whole machine here that I think um, is a perfect display of 
this is how one goes into academic medicine and becomes an expert in medical education and, and educational faculty development. So again, kudos. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, thank you. Um, I think, uh, again, it's, it's the environment, it's the culture, um, and as you mentioned, the tangible uh, evidence of that that allows that to be true. Um, I, I, you know, I spent a lot of years thinking about how, how to help people think about um, how they can be successful uh, document that success, help other people see it. Um, but you're right. If at the end of the day it isn't happening and they don't see anybody realizing that, um, it, it doesn't feel like more than something written on a piece of paper. So I think you, you've hit the nail on the head again. <laughs> Great. Well, this has been uh, wonderfully encouraging and inspiring, um, as I expected. Um, based on your my, the, the faculty, faculty Factory podcast interviews with your colleagues, Sue Pollard and Troy Buer, Dr. Mary Ellen Gussick has knocked it out of the park again for UVA. That's the place <laughs> for education. You've been learning from, uh, again, Dr. Gussick is the Senior Advisor for Educational Affairs and a Professor of Medical Education and Pediatrics at the University of Virginia. And you want to go to her if you want to know anything about direct observations and new programs of assessment. And she's all on it. And check out her articles in academic medicine. Thanks, Dr. Gussick. Thank you for letting me uh, share something I hope came through as something I'm incredibly excited about and feel very fortunate to be able to be working on. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.